This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Three Sisters Pawns, the story of our author, Philip B.J. Reed. My journey from street cop to FBI special agent. Phil, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me on. Tell me about the background into this story. You have a very interesting personal story. Share it with my listeners. Well, um, about me, uh, I'm a retired uh, FBI agent. Um, I was with the FBI for 28 years and retired in 2005 as a uh, senior executive and the special agent in charge of the Denver office in Colorado, which also covered Wyoming. But I'm from Baltimore. I received my uh, public and uh, Catholic education in Baltimore. I received my associate's degree in law enforcement from the Community College of Baltimore and a bachelor's degree in sociology from Morgan State University in Baltimore. I uh, joined the Baltimore City Police Department in 1969, uh, where I worked the street for three years. Then I went into personnel and recruited for the police department for two years, and then I taught at the uh, Baltimore City Police Academy for another three years. At that point, I uh, joined the uh, FBI in 1977, and after graduating from the uh, FBI Academy, I, I was assigned to various FBI offices around the country, which included Hawaii and Alaska. I worked uh, your typical uh, criminal cases, intelligence cases, and tourism uh, cases around the country. And I also worked what we call extraterritorial terrorism cases around the world. I was on various FBI SWAT teams. And again, uh, I retired after 28 years with the FBI as special agent in charge of the Denver FBI office. Well, thank you for your service in doing that very important work. Phil, I was looking at the back of your book, and there is a mention of Nice, France. And I understand there may be a parallel, at least in type, to the title of your book, Three Sisters Pawns. Yes. As I mentioned uh, earlier, um, I work what we call extraterritorial terrorism investigations. And they involve any time an American citizen was murdered, kidnapped, or seriously assaulted in other countries around the world, I and other uh, FBI agents with that responsibility would go to the various countries and conduct those investigations. And in, in this particular case, I had been working the uh, uh, bombing of the Pan Am 103 investigation that occurred over Lockerbie, Scotland, in December 21st, uh, 1988. And several years later, after we had identified those responsible, we had a a trial in the Netherlands, in Utrecht, Netherlands, on a former U.S. Air Force base called Camp Zeist in around the year 2000. And during the break in that trial, it was a three-day break, I decided that I was going to go to fly to Nice, France during my break 
to cover a what I call a bucket list item. But while I was in Nice, um, I found myself sitting on a bench eating lunch, overlooking uh, the Mediterranean Sea and just kind of watching all the big yachts uh, going by from Monte Carlo. And, uh, and I, I had a recollection at that point, uh, uh, realizing that I was fulfilling one of my major dreams of being in Nice, France, in the, which is the uh, French Riviera. And, uh, but I recalled that that dream, as well as many other dreams, had been launched a few decades earlier from a bench in Drude Hill Park in Baltimore City overlooking an area called Three Sisters Ponds. And so as I'm sitting on this bench in Nice, I'm recalling, I began to recall all those dreams that I had launched a few decades earlier from that bench. And basically the, the book takes you on that journey from that bench in Three Sisters Ponds in Drudeau Park in Baltimore City to where I was in Nice, France. What was the motivation behind putting all of the details of your life story together in this book? Well, I wrote the book. It was an opportunity to share my journey of going from poverty, being educationally uh, challenged, to becoming a Baltimore City policeman, and ultimately a world travel senior executive with the FBI. Uh, and, and, and an additional reason, more specifically, I wanted to encourage others to consider careers in criminal justice and law enforcement. And so I wrote the book to kind of inspire, encourage, uh, persuade, and motivate others to uh, consider this kind of career. Also, I wanted to encourage uh, the reader uh, to, to, uh, to dream, to set aggressive and challenging life goals and, 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 and emphasize how important it is to set, you know, to dream and to set uh, aggressive and challenging life goals. Also, I wanted to emphasize the importance of education and that it's never too late to get an education. And that is making sure that you get your high school diploma and that is and going on to, to getting a college education. And that is just really never too late. And I make it clear in my book of, you know, during my, through my, through my journey, you know, that I had my obstacles and that uh, I had to overcome those obstacles to get my education. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. Also, I wanted to emphasize the importance of using good judgment. And by using good judgment, you, know, you enhance your chances of later on getting, uh, you know, jobs because there are consequences you, when you use bad judgment. And, uh, and that could impact your ability for employment, you know, as you get older and, 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 and down the road. And, and finally, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I wanted to encourage Baltimore to uh, consider restoring Three Sisters Ponds and Drudio Park uh, because uh, now it's basically the victim of neglect. It's fallen into disrepair over the years. In your book, you discuss and share information about Pan Am Flight 103, which is a very high-profile international case. Was there anything that you discovered that was not known to the public in its initial form in your investigation? Well, 
the uh, the the investigation that ensued as a result of the bombing of uh, Pan Am 103 on December 21st, 1988, it took us uh, three years to conduct this investigation. It was a worldwide investigation. You know, we worked with law enforcement, intelligence, and in some cases, military agencies around the world and coming into a solution and try, and, and where we ended up identifying two Libyans that were primarily responsible for the bombing of, of Pan Am 103. And in conducting this investigation, what I detail uh, in, the, in, in my book is the role that the uh, CIA played in the success of the investigation. This hadn't been disclosed before, and, um, but I thought it was very important that uh, the world understood their role in the success of that investigation. Who do you think your audience will be? Who's going to find this book intriguing and want to read it? Well, I, I, I hope that anyone who um, is who's a dreamer, who yearns to dream, who looks for you know, uh, excitement, anyone who maybe has an interest in, in law enforcement, anyone who uh, is uh, interested in a criminal justice career, a law enforcement career, find interest in, in, in uh, my book. In addition to the Pan Am Flight 103 bombing and investigations, is there another story or event that you discuss in your book that people will find intriguing? You had mentioned the Veil Fires, for example. The book covers several investigations that uh, I was involved in as an FBI agent. There were, there were investigations in New York, investigations when I worked internal affairs uh, with the FBI, investigations uh, when I was assigned to Honolulu, Hawaii office, the Alaska, uh, Anchorage, Alaska office, as well as the uh, Denver office. So there are several cases that I think the reader would find of, uh, of interest. Uh, there, were, there were cases that I worked as a SWAT agent with the FBI. So I think there's enough discussions of FBI investigations that I think would pique the interest of the readers. Well, your book covers 36 years of law enforcement in Baltimore and as an FBI agent and some sensitive joint FBI and CIA investigations, did you have to receive approval to publish this book? Yes. One of the things we have to do before we retire as FBI agents is that we have to sign a uh, non-disclosure agreement. And because um, my book is nonfiction, it's a memoir, and I cover several sensitive investigations that I had to uh, send the, uh, the manuscript to, to the uh, FBI as well as the CIA's pre-publication review offices uh, for, for their review uh, and approval. The process took approximately four months, and uh, there were some, some parts of the book that they had uh, some questions about and we were able to resolve and, but uh, after about four months of, of back, back and forth, I received their approval and was able to publish the book. Tell me about the Bananas Are Rotten episode that you encountered. The, uh, the Bananas Are Rotten is, uh, is uh, part of uh, Chapter 12, uh, the bombing of uh, Pan Am 103 investigation. And the Bananas Are Rotten was a code 
that the CIA had established with uh, one of their Libyan intelligence uh, sources who were, who, as it turned out, was very critical to the solution of uh, the uh, uh, bombing of Pan Am 103 investigation. We had uh, reached a point in the investigation where it was critical that we interview him. The problem was that he was back in Tripoli at the time, and uh, we had to figure out how we could get him out. And But there was a, a recollection of an established code, which was the bananas are rotten, that if he was given that code, he would know that he would have to leave Tripoli immediately and that his association with the uh, uh, CIA had been compromised. And once we got that code to him, he dropped everything and met us in Europe. And uh, we were able to debrief him. And he is now a uh, U.S. citizen. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. You've managed to condense 36 years of law enforcement career into 278 pages. After someone finishes reading your book, what do you think they will get out of reading the book titled Three Sisters Pawns? Well, what I hope they get out of it is a great appreciation for what the brothers and sisters of uh, you know, law enforcement, whether it's federal, state, or local, uh, do you know, for this country. A lot of it is unnoticed, unheralded, and there are a great uh, number of unsung heroes out there, and and maybe when they uh, uh, next encounter a member of uh, law enforcement, that uh, they'll walk up to them and, and and actually you know shake their hands and and, and thank them for for uh, their service. Was there anything challenging about writing this book, putting it together? Well, it took me uh, approximately three years to write the book, and because it's non-fiction memoir. The challenge was chronology. The challenge was recalling the details and writing it in a manner that I thought uh, could be of value to to the reader. And, you know, having uh, been a new author uh, and the first time I've ever attempted to write a book, you know, this was a challenging endeavor. The title of the book is Three Sisters Pawns. Where do we get copies of this, Phil? You can get uh, copies of Three Sisters Pawns from Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, a Goodreads. You can download it uh, to your iPhones, iPads, electronically. Fabulous. Again, the title of the book is Three Sisters Pawns, My Journey from Street Cop to FBI Special Agent, and our author, Philip B.J. Reed. Thank you, Phil, for joining us today. Thank you, Jay, and I appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Today I welcome Leonard Nicholas to the program, who's written a book titled Levittown Through a Boy's View, and he goes by the pen name of Lost Lenny. Welcome, Mr. Lost Lenny, to the program. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to talk to you. This is an unusual book from this perspective. I looked at the cover, and it has, I would say, sketches, a very uh, stylistic cover, specifically in the style of the art of perhaps a first grader. And my assumption was that this was a children's book, but in reading through passages and other aspects of the book, it's 378 pages. So this is not a book that's necessarily directed towards children. Tell me about the story of Levittown through a boy's view. How did you come to write this? What inspired you to put this together? Well, what inspired me was my background. I grew up in Levittown, Long Island, which was the first incorporated village that Bill Levitt built. Okay, he was later to go on building a Levittown in New Jersey, another one in Pennsylvania, and um, he built uh, a few more. And um, basically, they all had the same structure, okay? And basically, it was a incorporated in village catering to a younger group of parents, and as such, to small children. Okay, and as I look back on it, my childhood was almost a fantasy. It was almost a dream because we had playgrounds. We had seven Olympic-sized swimming pools to play in, uh, each one with its own uh, large wading pool so that no, there was no danger of a child uh, uh, drowning. And it was really a fantastic place to grow up in. Well, there was an amazing development. The Levittown name certainly resonates with a lot of the history of the United States, especially after World War II. And did you, as a family member, as a child, move into Levittown as it was being developed? Uh, yes, in a way we did. We were, um, <clears throat> my parents were one of the original 2,200 um, couples that bought a Levitt house in one day. Bill wow. Levitt uh, sold 2,200 Levitt houses in one day. That's amazing. Uh, he had almost wrote the book on zoning. He certainly wrote the book on how to sell a house. And um, it was uh, really an unbelievable experience. Those first houses were sort of cookie-cutter in some regard. They were small and efficient. Was there anything unusual about your home? There was really nothing unusual about my home. It was a, um, uh, it was a typical of the uh, Levitt houses around. Uh, he did uh, build 
uh, several different versions. However, the Cape Cod seemed to be the most uh, common, and that's the house that I lived in and I, that I grew up in. Describe the book Levittown through a boy's view. Is this a fictional account based on your life experience, or is it uh, more of a biographical approach? Well, it is um, somewhat biographical, and it is uh, it is fictional in that all the characters are of my own invention. Okay. Uh, however, I do note certain um, parts of Levittown that are very real, like Bohax, okay, and the uh, playground in back of Bohax, and the recharge basins that were havens for children to play in, although I don't know if they do that anymore, but when we were kids, we um, played in the recharge basins. Also, we went... Uh, uh, through the drains that uh, took the water from the streets, and uh, they had these large, huge concrete drain pipes that uh, led the water to these recharge basins, which were huge pits in the ground. Amazing. In today's world, that probably would not be encouraged by families. Well, it wasn't encouraged uh, then, because uh, I think if my parents found out what I was doing, they would have um, uh, they would have spanked me quite a bit. <laughs> um, although I guess that type of uh, that, that type of behavior towards your children is not condoned today. Yeah, I think corporal punishment's uh, they out. you to use some so- sort of psychological approach, <laughs> which often does not work. Now, tell me about this book. Uh- as far as appeal, who do you think will enjoy reading this? Well, you know, when you look at the um, the title, Through a Boy's View, you think it's for children. No, it's not, because it's for everybody. We were all children. We all grew up. We all um, were subjected to uh, bullies and elementary school, and many of the things that I talk about in my book. So I think anybody can identify with Levittown. Now describe the process of writing your book. How long did it take, and was there some research that was needed, or did you just draw on your personal experience? Well, I don't think any research was needed because I lived it, okay? It was just a matter of drawing from my own uh, memory. And as far as the uh, time it took me to write the book, um, about seven months. I'm not a very fast writer, and I'm certainly not a prodigious author like John Jakes or James Michener or, or those great men. But in my own uh, in my own mind's eye, I felt that I had a, a story to tell, and so I wrote Levittown. The underlying story, is there a key story other than the adventures of a young boy, or are there other elements of this of this uh, tale? Well, there's no profound key messages that I really want to relate to the uh, reader, other than the re- I would like the reader to be entertained. 
and I think this book is entertaining. It's entertaining, and I think the reader can relate to it because his childhood experiences or her childhood experiences can very well relate to what I am saying. What's the name of the young man or the young boy who is your key character in Levittown? Oh, uh, Lester Nielsen. Lester Nielsen. In introducing this book to someone, how would you how would you highlight the reasons they should read this? Well, any good book, I feel it should entertain, especially a fictional book. It should entertain. It is not meant to uh, educate you on anything, but it's meant to draw from the reader's childhood experiences and to relate on what I'm saying in that book. And what is the time frame that Levittown, through a boy's view, what is the period of time it covers? I would think that the period of time it covers, as far as a child's age, is kindergarten through sixth grade. And would this be in the 50s or in the late 40s? Oh, absolutely, yes, in the 50s. In the 50s. What sets this apart? This is an unusual book. What do you think makes this book an unusual read and sets it apart from the crowd? I think that it's an unusual read in that I don't talk about an adult's vision. I don't talk about grown-up people um, and the the various mischief they get into, but I talk about children and the mischief that they get into on an adult's point of view. And are there any words that describe the story, its characters? Any words that describe the characters? Realistic, identifiable, somewhat historic. Those are important phrases that should grab the attention of our listeners. The uh, unusual pen name that you're using, you've written other books. Do you use that same pen name in your other works, or is this just for this book? Oh, no. I uh, I write under the uh, pen name of Lois Lenny. Um, I used to be a field representative for the American Motorcycle Association. And because I had such a terrible sense of direction, uh, people called me Lois Lenny. Um, it, the term had started when I was a member of the retreads in northern New York, and that handle just simply stuck with me, and it's still with me today. Well, it's charming. I still have a lousy sense of direction. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a charming name. I was concerned it might have a more dark and sinister thought behind it. So that one, oh, I, no. can, I can relate to that one. You're also an individual that loves to restore old automobiles. Are you still involved in the Antique Model A Restorers Club? Yes, I am. Fabulous. Uh, I own a uh, 1931 Model 55B uh, two-door sedan, and I love that car. It's um, it's simple and something I can identify with, and it goes at my speed. Are you able to drive that in public? I, I don't mean that in a in a uh, an unusual context, but if I had a car that I considered to be special, I don't know if I'd want to take it out in public much. Oh, absolutely. I drive it on public roads at all times. Uh, As long as you bear in mind that um, uh, you have to be extremely defensive, you're not going as fast as everybody, 
and you um, and you allow people to pass you, or sometimes uh, pull over and slow down, let them pass you. Uh, avoid any problems that you might have on the road with fast people. Well, in addition to writing, this sounds like a charming hobby. In uh, writing, yes, in writing the book Levittown through a boy's view, were there any challenges that were difficult for you to overcome? The uh, challenges that were difficult for me to overcome was my memory. Was going back fifty-five, sixty years and trying to re- uh, grab the stuff and trying to remember these things that had happened. And I find myself going around with a piece of paper or a notebook and just simply jotting things down as they come to me, and then that night putting these things into the book. It was challenging, um, but in other words, but it also was rewarding and a great deal of fun. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Would you consider your view of Levittown a positive view? Absolutely. Well, thank you yes. for sharing that information. The title of the book, again, is Levittown Through a Boy's View. Our author is Lost Lenny. Uh, that is his pen name. His real name is Leonard Nicholas. Lenny, thank you for joining us today, Lost Lenny. Where can we get copies of your book? You can get copies of my book from Author House. Excellent. And you have a couple of other books in the work, and we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Again, the author is Lost Lenny. The book that we've reviewed today is Levittown Through a Boy's View. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, sir. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is Becoming, and our author, Dr. Peter J. Morey. Welcome, Dr. Morey. Thank you for having me. Dr. Morey, give us a little more insight into the purpose and the content of your book. There's a title, Becoming, and underneath that, a picture or photo of a child sitting on the beach. Explain how that signifies the contents of what you've written here today. 
Well, the daughter, the girl on my on the book is my granddaughter, and and she has opening a pearl, and the title of the book actually is reflected in the pearl. Um, essentially, if I had to sum up the book in one word, uh, the purpose of the book is to, if you want to change the world, first change yourself. And essentially, I'm a medical doctor, and I get lots of people in my office with uh, all kinds of issues, psychological trauma issues, abusive issues, and things like that. And I happened to have one day uh, witnessed a girl emerging from a very abusive relationship, and at the same day, I, I saw a a show on TV where the Japanese were culturing pearls and they put put a grain of sand in a pearl in a uh, in a clam or an oyster and it would uh, become turn into a thing of beauty called a pearl. So that transformation was I was witnessing in the in the person in front of me who was coming out of a situation where she did not like herself and didn't and thought herself an ugly duckling and all the things that go with abuse to someone who's emerging and becoming strong and empowered. So I decided to combine the two ideas and wrote a book called, a poem called Becoming. Anyway, so I took the title of the book from that poem. Well, the cover of your book indicates you've covered a lot of territory, everything from love, truth, killing, sexuality, religion, and politics. Apparently you've covered the whole gamut of the human condition. Well, exactly. My poetry over the years has reflect my own personal journeys and those that I've witnessed uh, dealing with a lot of topics. And and I and I realize that people don't buy poetry, and uh, and I had a few people who read my stuff say it was really good. And so I decided, and maybe I create a a format, a stage in which to per, to produce or to showcase my poetry. Um, and as it turned out, the prose section turned out to be just as powerful in the end. It was really quite satisfying to have a book that can sell itself either on the prose or on the poetry, and the combination was quite uh, satisfying. So what I've used, what I've talked about in my book is um, essentially the things, the vicissitudes of human nature that drag us down and, and make us negative people, who give us negative energy and, and make us unhappy with who we are and so the purpose was to try to to get people to look at their core values and change those core values and become positive people and by becoming positive people you see the world differently and then the world which is very threatening and negative then becomes a positive place in which to live and that energy is infectious and as a result people who are positive find that they uh, encounter positive energy everywhere because there's no such thing as negative energy to them. And so that, that's the mission of the book is to change people to become positive. Dr. Mori, is this the first publication that you've done, first published work? It yes. is, and uh, it may not be the last. I'm, I'm getting such good reviews. I'm very happy with what's happening. But I also love my career as a physician, and I... I that's my number one love. I mean, all it, all it takes is one person in trouble, and I can turn them around through counseling, and I'm not a high for a week sort of thing. So I, I enjoy my medicine, uh, but the writing is, is definitely something that I'd like to continue. And I will mention to my listeners that you are located in Canada. Yes, yes I am. Um, I'm in Newfoundland, which is on the east coast of Canada, and uh, we we maintain we're the world's best kept secret. We don't have a big population because our weather used to be terrible. It still is, but our politics is relatively sane, and we don't uh, 
we're a very non-judgmental society here. People are very accepting of others, and uh, your mistakes and your problems and things tend to be uh, not um, terrible import. And so it's a great place to live. I've traveled to 30 countries worldwide. I've lived in B.C. I, for 16 years for a practice. I've been all over, but to me, the jewel in the entire universe is right here where I am. I will disclose that I am also Canadian, but have not visited Newfoundland. From what you're describing, it sounds like an absolutely gorgeous province, one that I am putting on my bucket list of places to visit. And also might describe your Newfoundlander compatriots as uh, very fine people, and generally socially uh, mild-mannered, possibly because they spend six or eight months of the year indoors because of the winter. That's at least my supposition. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you are a typical Southern American. I hate to say this. But I'm Canadian. The weather's not quite as bad as uh, <laughs> you guys think. Matter of fact, we've had people up here in the middle of the summer with skis on their car looking for ski slopes. Yeah, they do that in Ontario, where I'm from as well. We're basically a, a three months of winter type of climate, and the rest of it is not hot. We don't have the really overwhelming heat, but what we have is a pleasant. Uh, 18 to 25 to 30 summer, which may be three, four months. And we have something that you don't get down in Texas. we got icebergs. Amazing. <laughs> which which float by and are spectacular to see. One of my poems is about an iceberg. Yeah, the only ice that we see here in the southern part of the United States is ice floating in iced tea glasses. Yeah, you mentioned something that I like to get back to, like my book covers a variety of topics. Yes. Um, I've targeted a whole pile of groups because, so for instance, homosexuality is a very, uh, thank God, becoming less of a, uh, the negativity regards homosexuality becoming um, less in, in, in our world as people are getting more enlightened. And uh, so when I wrote the section on sexuality, I was trying to uh, create the impression that, um, uh, or not create the impression, but reveal the knowledge that uh, sexuality, as, as designed by nature, takes all forms, and all forms are the same. None are more important to the survival of the species than others. And it, it's an argument that has a lot of weight, and there's a lot of science that's quoted in the text on that. The other one is very relevant to Americans, because you have uh, another topic that I deal with is killing. You guys have had some major war issues uh, and lots of soldiers coming back who have been destroyed and the suicide rate amongst the returning vets is quite high. And there's a reason for that and I discuss the uh, nature of killing and what it does to people. Um, I discuss abuse where young people have uh, maybe been bullied and as a result of being bullied their own image is destroyed and I I deal with uh, that and try to show them skills to help uh, overcome that. So the purpose of the book is, to, like I said, to, to look at these various things in society. Religion is huge. I, I, I basically am um, very provocative in my views on religion because uh, I believe religion is one of the major sources of, of evil in the world as opposed to good because what it does is it divides people and makes people judge other people as being wrong or somehow uh, not um, uh, good because they subscribe to a different value system. And I'm trying to break down those uh, those um, beliefs to so become more acceptance, accepting. So my book basically is designed to promote 
acceptance, uh, understanding, uh, love, and and when you love yourself uh, because you have good values uh, uh, and are non-judgmental, it's easy to be loved by others. And so, the whole method, uh, uh, the premise is that by improving your own um, uh, ability to have uh, uh, unconditional love, you can basically have a very happy life no matter what your economic circumstances. So it's 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 that type of a book, and uh, as I said, there's many. Many, many um, um, topics more I could explore, but I didn't want to be too. Um, I just want to get the core things that uh, that matter most to people. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear one of the passages of the pieces you've written, if you have a moment, and uh, have one that's your favorite or one that you think would be relevant. Okay, since we're probably dealing at large with an American audience, uh, uh, I'm going to try two pieces. I'll do that one on killing. Uh, yeah, here we go. This is called The Price of Killing, and so it's, this is a prose section, and then I'll read one poem that uh, deals with that. What I've done is I create a topic of prose, discuss it in prose, and then I'll highly, I, I'll evoke feelings using a few poems at the end of the section. So this one is called The Price of Killing. The nurse drew up a sedative and approached a young soldier in his bed in the military hospital. He had been screaming in his sleep. His young face, scarred by the loss of innocence, his eyes, wild with fear and unimaginable pain, were windows to a soul that had lost its way. His lips trembled. He tried to utter words he could not speak. He was a soldier coming back from the war. The wounds he carried were not those of lost limbs, but the loss of his soul. Unfortunately for him, the war he fought had followed him home and was now being waged on a new battlefield, one that he could not see, the one that, one that only he could see. The weapons he needed to win were, wep- were different weapons. He had none, and he did not know where to find them. Hate had been a, a useful we- weapon over there. It had served him well, but now the fire of hate was self-hate, and it terrified him. Once an idealist, he had believed in his country. Now he felt his country's cause unjust. He felt lied to, betrayed. He was ashamed of what his country had made him become. He felt alone, isolated, and no longer knew who he was. He had no future and was chained to a past that he could not forget. He wanted to run away, but he had nowhere to run to since he he could not run from himself. He had killed others. Some of them were younger than his baby brother. And every time he saw his baby brother, it reminded him of what he had done. He wanted to kill himself. He could not. He was too much of a coward. He did not belong here. He did not belong anywhere. The nurse bared his arm and gave him a sedative. She held his head in her arms and sang him a lullaby. Tears well up in his eyes, and his body convulsed with unspeakable demons trapped inside. He sobbed, sobbed uncontrollably. She rocked him like a baby, and she sang, and eventually he slept. And one of the poems that follows that is Me Alone, is titled, Where Do I Belong? Alone or with them? Where do my feelings take me when I am alone? towards tranquility and contentment, or towards my destruction, the pleasures of the lonely path, not the pleasures of sharing. 
I know that I don't want to be there alone. Yet I find things there that I cannot find with them. The pleasures attract me. No, no, possess me and they scare me. That's why I don't like to go there alone. I'd rather be here with them than be here alone with me. I like the me they make me become with them. Unlike the me I am alone. Is it the me I don't like or the me alone? Or is it the me I become when I am alone? So that's the section on killing. There's other things there, but it sort of gives you a flavor. In reading the notes about your book, I understand this compilation of prose and poetry is actually something that has taken over 40 years. Yes, uh, well, the, the, that poem was written many, many years ago uh, when I was much younger, but uh, it's very relevant, obviously, to a, uh, to a soldier returning from any war, particularly as war, the, the uh, boundaries of what really is the enemy is, is so blurred, and our politicians are definitely not upfront and, and uh, truthful with, with the soldiers they send over there. It, it makes it very hard. It was easy to fight Hitler because we knew what he had done and what he was capable of doing, but modern soldiers are sent to a place where, you know, our, our media, although they've tried to basically hide the truth, haven't been successful, and it makes it very hard for these young men to do their duty for their country when they sometimes think their country is not in the right, and that's why I wrote that particular section. The one coming up, uh, this other one, I'm going to read a poem now that basically follows a section on uh, a woman that's been abused and uh, has trouble, uh, you know, with her own identity and who she is and her life and everything. It's called Nobody Wants Me. And how this one came about was I had a patient come in one day and said, no, everybody wants me, but no one wants to keep me. And And the poem, as I said, is called No One Wants to Keep Me. Everybody wants me, but no one wants to keep me, she cried and wondered why. Her sorrow honed by retreat as she watched the years roll by. The blighted dreams of innocent youth now changed both long and strong. She wondered how it happened, how things could go so wrong. The playful, laughing, smiling girl that used to love the play, with fetal curl and curtains drawn, now dreads the light of day. This battered beauty cannot see with broken lenses clearly. Abusive husband for years has flown, yet still torments her daily. Rejection, pain, disdain, abuse were hers as years rolled past. Her future furled, her body curled into her fetal past. The future has become her past. They're welded into one. She dreads the light that gives her sight into what she has become suitors want her. She's had her share. They want but will not give. They take and take and almost break that fragile will to live. The world outside, a nightmare ride that chills her to the bone. She hides away and dreads the day and makes her cheer her home. Her days are nights, her fear she fights, her morning has no sun. From endless day she hides away, she has no place to run. The only arms that hold her are the cheer that traps her form. Huddled there in her prison chair, the only safety that she's known. 
Like a broken mirror, piece by piece, she gave herself away. She must protect the pieces left, so in her chair she'll stay. The lesson learned from the men concerned? She feels like pocket change. Everyone wants her, but no one wants to keep her. So that's basically uh, gives you a flavor of what kind of stuff is in the book. Thought-provoking material. Was there anything challenging about putting this book together? It was actually an amazingly crazy idea <laughs> because when I first started, it was so disconnected and everything that, you know, it was just, you know, and then one night I had a, a, an epiphany, I guess. I was working. I woke up about 2 in the morning, and I started writing, which is most of my writing occurs in the middle of the night. I, I wake up with something in my head. I started writing, and I looked at my watch. I said, I'm getting hungry. I must get up, and it, it said 7.30. And it happened to be 7.30 at night, and I had one of those sessions where I was lost in space for for all that time. And so, in a way, it, it, it writing is not something you can contrive or force yourself to do. It has to be there, and it has to come, and when it comes, it comes like water out of a tap. And other days, the tap is dry. So it's it's rather interesting going through the process. I must say, it's been very illuminating, and I've got a great respect for anybody who's been able to put pen to paper. Thank you for giving us some insight into the background of putting this book together. The title, again, is Becoming, and our author, Dr. Peter J. Morey. Where do we get copies of your book, Dr. Morey? It's published by Author House, but it's also available on Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, Barnes & Noble, and if you basically scan the word Becoming, because there's actually five or six books called Becoming. Um, as I went online, I was distressed to find that out. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but if you scan the book title Becoming with my name, M-O-R-R-Y, it'll bring you to the, uh, the uh, s- section. But the one I found best, to give you excerpts is Amazon.ca. They've got about 50 or 60 pages highlighted from my book uh, that you can actually go in and read. Uh, fortunately, they didn't put the whole book online in that format, but they put enough there that you can get a really good flavor as to what it's about. And uh, and it's also available in digital format, uh, soft co- cover and hard cover. Thank you for sharing this additional information. Over 200 pages, and the title again is Becoming Our Author, Dr. Peter J. Morey. Thank you for joining us today. Well, Jay, thank you very much, and all the best to you, and I appreciate the opportunity to come on your show. And thank you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker.